Hello, good morning again. My name is Sean. I'm the lead pastor here at Sycamore. We'll be continuing our series through the book of Esther. We'll be in Esther chapter 3 this morning. It's found on page 10 of your bulletin or as you're turning there in your smartphone or in your own Bible. Let's go to God first in prayer. How gracious God and heavenly Father, Lord, it's our joy to come before you now, to come before your word, to hear from you yet again, to receive your truth for our growth and for our transformation. We ask, Lord, that you would indeed show us more and more of Jesus in this text, more of ourselves, and more of how the two of us can come together. Lord, we ask this in Jesus' great name. Amen. So as we're working our way through Esther 3, the, the, the writer here has taken two chapters so far to introduce us to life in empire, to introduce us to the main characters, and then to introduce us now to the real conflict that's going to happen in the book. Now, I've been using the term empire because that's what Persia is. They're living in an empire. And that's very much how the cultural pressure of our time works. And I want to use the word empire because I want us to see how big it is. I don't want to use the word, you know, government because then people might, yeah, we don't, we don't like the government. No, it's, it's bigger than that. Or culture, yeah, we don't like all them bad movies. No, it's bigger than that. It's the whole background human structures behind governments, behind entertainments that create an imperial pressure. Do this, don't do that, be this kind of person. That's how an empire works. So we we don't live under the government of an empire, but we deal with the very same or very similar pressures to what Esther and her people did. In fact, as I've said before, we may have more in common with the people in the book of Esther than any other people in Scripture. So again, as I use the word empire, not talking about the government, not talking about Star Wars. Someone asked me this week, although I'll totally talk about Star Wars if you want to. Okay, what I'm talking about is these baseline culture and pressure behind governments, behind entertainments. These are the pressures that we feel to get along with, that that we feel to have to get along in the world today. So, God's people in Persia then, God's people today deal with these pressures, and we're calling them empire to help us understand that. And now, starting here in chapter 3, you're going to see what's actually really behind all of that. What's behind empire? What's behind all these cultural pressures? And to do that, I've got to introduce you to something that theologians call seed theology. There's other names for it, but I like that one best. And so if you would, I want you to look at this slide of Genesis chapter 3, 15. If you want to turn there in your own Bibles, you can, but we're, we're just going to look at this one verse. So this might do it. This is the, what theologians call, how impressive is this? You ready? This is the Proto-Evangelium. Aren't you just impressed? That means the first good news, the first gospel. This is the first promise in Scripture right after the fall that God's going to fix it. So he tells this to the serpent. Actually, he says, I will put enmity, hatred, conflict between you and the woman and between your offspring or seed and her offspring or seed. He shall bruise your head. You shall bruise his heel. So God establishes a conflict. And he looks at the serpent, who is you know, Satan at this point, having tempted Adam and Eve. And he says, I am going to bring forth from her one who will crush your head. One day, someday, he's coming to crush your head. 
And so the whole big picture summary of the whole rest of the Old Testament really is Satan using whatever he can, temptations to other faiths, temptations to abandon God, or armies of other people. Satan uses all of those to try to stop this coming head crusher. He's going to do it because he believes God's promise, and he wants to stop it. That's the whole summary of the Old Testament. And that background, that background of Satan-inspired enemies trying to wipe out God's people, not only is that the whole Old Testament, that's the specific background to Esther chapter 3, where we're going to meet one of these satanic enemies trying to stop God's people. Okay, so that's enough background. I want to get into today's text. So our theme for today is this. Subjects suffer for empire's good. But Jesus suffers for our good. Okay, we're going to read this text in sections because, again, it's a long narrative. And I want us to be able to follow along. We'll look at verses 1 through 6 first. This is God's word from Esther chapter 3. After these things, King Ahasuerus, and again, we use his more common Greek name, Xerxes. King Ahasuerus promoted Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? And when they spoke to him day after day, he would not listen to them. And they told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew." And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury, but he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. And so as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. Okay, so starts out into chapter 2, if you remember what happened last week, Mordecai finds out about and foils an assassination attempt on Xerxes. Xerxes knows it was Mordecai who did it. And so the very next verse we get in the book of Esther is after these things, not Mordecai, but someone else is elevated, promoted, exalted. And an original reader would be like, no, no, no. Where's Mordecai's reward? Here's him doing something great. He's supposed to get a great reward. Because, see, apparently we we know from historical sources, ancient Persian kings had apparently read Dale Carnegie because they were totally hearty in their approbation and lavish in their praise. And here Mordecai does something great. He should get a great reward, and he gets nothing. Instead, this guy Haman the Agagite is promoted. And a Jewish reader at this point would just cringe, be like, what? And we don't get it, and that's okay. So remember how Mordecai was introduced back in chapter 2? You don't have to remember, but it's a bunch of names that basically meant this. He is a descendant of King Saul. And now we get this guy here who's an Agagite. And to someone who's versed in the Old Testament, if you get Saul and Agag in the same sentence, you get bad news is what you have. Say, follow me here. So way back in Exodus 17, God's people were still coming out of Egypt. They'd crossed the Red Sea. They hadn't entered the promised land yet. They had to go through this one territory to get to the promised land. And the very first people who decided to attack God's family was this group called the Amalekites. God didn't like that. And God says, 
You can look it up. Exodus 17 goes, I'm going to get you for that. Centuries go by. Israel's established. They get King Saul. God comes to King Saul and says, remember the Amalekites? Remember what they did? Go get them. Take all their stuff. Burn it. Because it's not about looting. It's about justice. Wipe them out. Take their stuff. I don't want to see Amalekites around anymore. Saul gets an army. He goes after them. And all of a sudden, in the middle of a battle, he starts looking at how shiny all their stuff is. He starts thinking about how much money he could get for ransom from the king. And he goes, well, it'd be all right if I just take some of the stuff. So he takes some of their stuff, lets King Agag survive, and God rejects him as king because of that disobedience. And there's still Agagites around now. So now, for a Jewish reader, you get Mordecai, who's a descendant of Saul. You get Haman, who's a descendant of Agag. And all of a sudden, you're like, oh, these two guys aren't going to like each other. These two guys represent centuries of ethnic and racial and religious hatred that's been going on forever and ever. So who are they now? Well, Mordecai, we met. Mordecai is an upper-level minister in the Persian court, and we meet this guy named Haman. I wonder who this guy is. Boys and girls, I bet you can help your parents out here figure out who this guy is. Let me show you a picture, okay? This is not Haman. Anybody know who this is? Who, you can go ahead and say that if you know who this is. Who is it? That's Jafar. That's right, from from Aladdin. Does anybody, now here's, you get extra points here. Does anybody remember what his position was? What his title was? Yeah, I don't know. He was the Grand Vizier. And that's an actual historical position. And Haman was the Grand Vizier of Persia under Xerxes. So he had this same position that Jafar had. And guess what? You're supposed to bow to the Royal Vizier. Okay? You don't pull on Superman's cape, you don't spit into the wind, you don't pull the mask off the Long Ranger, and you bow to the vizier. Everybody knew this stuff. You, that's just what, how it was. But Mordecai won't do it. Now at this point, I'm supposed to commend Mordecai to you and how he stood firm on his faith and he would not worship a man, but I can't do it. Because Mordecai, excuse me, Haman was not trying to be worshipped. You bowed to the royal vizier. You bowed to all sorts of things in the Old Testament. There's no prohibition in the Old Testament against bowing before things. And as a court official who still had a pulse, Mordecai had bowed to Xerxes a lot. It wasn't about that. It's un-American, so we, we, we react quickly, but it's not unbiblical to bow before political officials. So what's going on here? Let's look together at verse 2. Try to get some wisdom here. <clears throat> Verse 2 says this. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. Do you notice it's kind of a redundant command? You don't have to command. You just do it. You bow to the royal vizier. That the king has to command what is normally a, a standard custom is a hint in the text that Haman is not popular. People had to be forced to do what they're supposed to do already. Then in verse 4, Mordecai's co-workers come to him. And the way it's written, they're not coming accusatorily. They're coming like, you're Mordecai. Why are you doing this? What's, what's your reason? Do you have a special dispensation? Like, do you have a get-out-of-jail-free card? What, what's going on? And the text is very clear. He would not engage in the conversation. He's, no, I, I want to talk about it. And there's a, there's a hint of stubbornness there on his part. 
Here we have Mordecai who's so wise in giving Esther advice and working with the assassination attempt, but now his hatred, his tribalism makes him take an unwise stance, literally. Because in verse 4 when he says it's because he was a Jew, it shows that it's not personal. This is that age-old conflict. He is not going to bow down to that Yankee carpetbagger Agagite. He's not going to do it. And I love how the text goes out of its way to show us that Haman hadn't even noticed until it was brought to his attention. Haman had missed it, which means Mordecai unnecessarily made himself a target. You know, this cultural pressure that I'm calling empire, it's unrelenting, isn't it? And it wears down people of faith, which is its goal be like us, worship what we worship, call good what we call good, call bad what we call bad, or we will cancel you. We will destroy you. Demonstrate what we have said as public righteousness, or we will pronounce woe upon the malefactors, just like every dogmatic community has ever done. It's easy for us to get sick of that junk, isn't it? And just, I've had enough, and we take a stand on an uncritical issue because we just can't take it anymore and all of a sudden we're a target. All of a sudden we're noticed we weren't noticed before. That's what Mordecai did here. And I could totally step into that landmine and give some specific examples but I'm not but you know what I'm talking about. So once Mordecai is on Haman's radar Haman is raging mad so he goes after Mordecai and all the Jews which seems excessive, doesn't it, until we remember Genesis 3.15. Behind this is Satan using human structures, human cultures, to stop the coming head crusher. And so here's an opportunity. We're going to get rid of these people, finally. Haman, in other words, is an agent of the real deep state. Now, you and I, we're not in the same place as Mordecai because Jesus is the seed of the woman. Okay, spoiler alert, it's Jesus. Okay, Jesus is the seed of the woman who comes and crushes the head of the serpent. But in his death throes, Satan lashes out at the church because of his overwhelming hatred of, of Jesus. If you want to see kind of a, a good visual picture of that, Revelation 12 is basically all about that. Satan tried to stop Jesus, couldn't stop Jesus, and so in his hatred he can't touch Jesus, so he goes after those Jesus loves, us. Which puts us in a very similar situation to the Jews in Persia. Human systems, empire, hates God and takes it out on God's people. And part of the pressure of assimilation that empire puts on us is to make us think it's not that bad. Well, it's, it's okay. I mean, you know, I mean, well, sure, if, if their side wins at the ballot box, then, then it's bad. But if our side wins, it's not that bad. It's okay. It's not, they don't really hate God and everything about it. That's assimilation. That's the pressure. Haman and this story is a reminder that Satan uses human power structures and cultures, those we like and those we don't like, to attack God's people, which is exactly what happens next. Let's look at verses 7 through 11 now. 
In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, they cast pur, that is, they cast lots. They rolled dice, basically, before Haman day after day. And they cast it month after month till the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, There's a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people, and they do not keep the king's laws, so that it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. If it please the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed, and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business, that they may put into the king's treasuries. So the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, the money is given you, the people also, do with them as it seems good to you. And we'll stop there. So the dates put in here, the little hints, Esther has been queen for five years at this point. She's obviously kept her Jewish identity secret that whole time. Haman is rolling the dice. Archaeologists have actually found these things. They really are clay dice. He's rolling the dice, trying to figure out, hope, hopefully, that the spiritual powers, what they call genies, you didn't just rub a lamp, hopefully the genies will tell him what's the luckiest day to do this deed. So he gets his answer from the magic eight ball. He goes to the king, and let's look and dig in at verse 8 and see what happens next. I'm going to read this again. So then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, there's a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people. They do not keep the king's laws so that it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. So Haman comes and says, you know, there's a certain people, they're different, they're difficult, and they're dangerous. Using innuendo, half-truths, outright lies. Haman says, look, Xerxes, these people are a clear and present danger. Xerxes is never told that they're Jews. He's just told they commit the ultimate sin. They won't assimilate. And the fact that Xerxes receives that as a big enough deal to do something about it reminds us of how fragile empire is. Empire is insecure. It always feels threatened. You can always tell when something or someone is fragile because what happens if you deal with something that's, that's fragile? It's overprotective, it overreacts, and it simply can't handle the slightest challenge. You must be canceled. You must be silenced because we can't handle even that presence. That is a reaction of fragility. And that fragility comes to all of us from the exhaustion that we live under because empire says, perform. You never get rest. You have to perform. We have no rest. It's exhausting. I want to zoom into that last part of verse 8 there. When the text says this, it says, it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. Literally, it translates, it's not in the king's profit to give them rest. See, going all the way back to Genesis, when God created the first humans, Adam and Eve, we usually say, well, he put them in the garden. But that's not what the text says. The text says he rested them in the garden. It was meant to be a place of complete fulfillment where, you know, right, your to-do list is done. You still got money in the bank. There's no more bills you can think of. The kids are doing fine. Everybody's healthy. And what do you do? (sighs) 
that feeling right there, that's rest. That's what you were intended for. That's what God offers to his people. And we see here that in direct contradiction to God's supplying rest, it is assumed that empire is the source of rest. Get along with us, live as we say live, and you get to rest. And if you don't match what we say you should do, we will make sure you get no rest. You get no peace because we tell you how you're significant. We tell you how you get status. We give you rest. Are we really that different from the empire of Haman's time? I mean, in our era, in our culture, doesn't, doesn't it say, isn't the pressure to look here to see what's important? To look here to see what matters? Isn't there constant pressure of assimilation that don't be a Jesus freak. Don't be religious. Don't, don't, don't think that that's what really is significant. Look to our values to find significance. Look to our values to find what really matters. Here, here, here's how you can know if you've been tempted to this. You know, I believe Jesus. I love Jesus. But if we can just get our people voted, oh, it'll be okay. If we can just get these economic policies, then... If we can just get these kind of morals enforced, then oh, it'll be okay. That's assimilation. That says, well, I know God says this, but we need to use empire's means to get God's ends. That's assimilation. That's the pressure we live under. So Haman has a plan. Xerxes takes off the signet ring, which is like the seal of making it official. He basically just hands Haman executive power. And the great machine of Persian bureaucracy starts to grind into action. Let's look together and see what they produce. Verses 12 through 15. Then the king's scribes were summoned on the 13th day of the first month. And an edict, according to all Haman commanded, was written to the king's satraps and to the governors over all the provinces and to the officials of all the peoples, to every province in its own script and every people in its own language. It was written in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed with the king's signet ring. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instruction to destroy, to kill, to annihilate all the Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. A copy of the document was to be issued as a decree in every province by the proclamation to all the peoples to be ready for that day. The couriers went out hurriedly by order of the king, and the decree was issued in Susa, the citadel. And the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. So last time, if you remember, we saw government this active it was, we made fun of them for overreacting about all their out-of-control women at the end of verse uh, chapter 1. Now it's not quite so funny. The day is set 11 months in the future so the Jews can stew in fear for a, almost a year. Boys and girls, you ever done something really bad at home? And maybe you heard those words, you just wait till your father gets home. Or maybe in my house, like I heard a couple times, you just wait till your mother gets home. That's what's going on here. You just wait 11 months from now. It's coming. You've got to sit in that fear. And then, well, what's going to happen? What's going to happen? The edict is signed, sealed, and delivered to the governors. It's delivered to the state police. It's delivered to the county sheriffs. 
And then in verse 14, it tells us it's also proclaimed in every town square. Hey, guess what, average citizens? Y'all get to play too. It's not just law enforcement. I mean, here's what's happening. Imagine, imagine if all of a sudden we lived in in an era where this law could actually be passed and enforced, where all of a sudden it was decreed on December 15th, 2021, there will be no federal, state, county, or local charges for anyone who kills a member of a Christian church. Not only that, you can take all their stuff free of charge. Free, no, no enforcement, it's all you. Kind of like that movie, The Purge, almost. How, how safe would you feel? Now, I know some of you are like, man, let's do it, bring it. I know, but for the rest of us, like, how safe would you really feel, right? W- would your neighbors? How's that conflict with your neighbors going? Are y'all friends? Would you, would you find out, maybe? See, that's what's going on here. The Jews in Persia are going to find out what their neighbors really think. I mean, it sounds extreme. It almost sounds like this has got to be fiction. But again, in the background of Genesis 3.15, the background of Satan will do whatever he can to stop the coming head crusher. We're focused on the capital here in Persia. But if you look at a map and you head west about 800 miles, do you know what also is part of Persia at this point? Palestine. Jerusalem is being rebuilt with Persian money right now in this text. All the Jews in Palestine. It's hard for the Lion of Judah to roar if Judah dies in Persia and has no more kids. It's hard for someone to be born in the city of David if there is no Bethlehem because it was destroyed by the Persians 500 years in advance. See, Satan's like, oh, I just put the king in check. I'm going to kill every single Jew. I'm going to stop the promised he. I'm going to win. And what makes it even more intense for the original readers is that for a Jewish person, the 13th day of the first month is like Christmas Eve for them. That's Passover Eve. Every Jew in the empire, as this edict is publicized, is actually preparing a sacrifice lamb, getting ready to put the blood over their doorpost to celebrate the fantastic, great, biggest event of the Old Testament of their deliverance, where God himself sent the angel of death and saved their sons, looking forward to the death of his own son for them. As they remember that God delivered them from Pharaoh's death, they're looking now going, who will deliver us from Haman's threat? Is there some sort of blood we can use 11 months from now? See, and and with that hanging question, the chapter ends with Xerxes and Haman secure inside the beltway, sitting back in the West Wing to enjoy a cold one, while the entire capital city is up in arms in confusion. Which is a hint of hope. Empire's subjects are not overjoyed at the edict against the Jews. So there's a, just a hint of hope there. And let's end in that hope. You know, people of faith today, we feel pressure. There's a conflict. But if the Bible is true, Jesus has won our victory. And as I've said before, this is a, the book of Esther is a unique book. No one prays. God doesn't show up authoritatively and speak through a prophet. 
There's no mention of really anything that we would call overtly religious. In fact, it was one of those books, like, why is it in the Bible? But Jesus himself in Luke 24 said, every word of the Bible is about me. So he's either an incredible narcissist or it's true. We choose to believe it's true. And so we look at Esther and say, okay, how is Esther teaching us under the Holy Spirit about Jesus? Well, there's a couple ways. One, Xerxes was the great king of the mighty Persian Empire. He didn't require much to be in his good graces. Simply obey, don't rebel, pay your taxes. Mordecai did not obey the king's law. He publicly rebelled. And so really Mordecai deserved what Haman was going to throw at him. But Mordecai's failure brought all of his people under Haman's wrath and curse as well. An empire demands their death for its good and its glory. And so too, Xerxes pales in comparison to the great king of all creation that our triune God is. And when he created humankind in his image, he didn't require much, just simply obey, don't rebel, enjoy this garden. And Adam, the first man, did not obey God's law. He publicly rebelled and he led not only his wife, but all of his offspring into that rebellion. Adam deserved the consequences of death laid upon him. And his failure brought about those consequences for his entire people under the wrath and curse of the great king. See, just like Mordecai and Adam deserved death, so too, if the Bible's true, we deserve that edict of death as well. But instead of insecure Xerxes who has to kill others to support his own glory, the God of glory says, I will sacrifice my son because I love you to save you. I will put the edict of death on him so he can pay the penalty you deserve. See, the question of the Jews at this point, preparing for Passover, asking, where's the lamb to save us from Haman? The rest of the Bible says it's Jesus. In the Gospel of John, John the Baptist, the last of the Old Testament prophets, when he first sees Jesus, he looks at him and says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And then the ancient Christian pastor, the Apostle Paul, says in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, Christ, our Passover Lamb, has been slain. The New Testament is clear. Jesus is our Passover. He shields us from the king's wrath with his death. He makes us the king's daughters and sons with his life. And in his resurrection, he gives us what the empire promises but can never deliver. Rest. The peace that comes from being known, like really known, and still accepted. That's rest. That's what Jesus offers in the gospel. And don't you want that? Then it's yours when you place your faith and trust in him as the resurrected Lord. Let's pray together. Our gracious God and heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your, for your word. We thank you even for enigmatic books like Esther. Father, where we kind of have to dig in a little bit to find the truth of your gospel, but we're so grateful that it's there. We pray, Father, that you would, by your Spirit, give those of us who know you strength for the constant battle and temptation against empire. Lord, we pray 
that you would keep us faithful because it's hard. And Lord, we pray for those here who do not know you. We pray, Lord, that as Jesus Christ has been lifted up and portrayed as crucified for sin and resurrected for life, that you would be true to your promise that as Jesus Christ is lifted up, you would draw all people to yourself. Would you do that, Lord? Even now, would you do your work of salvation? Build your kingdom here. We ask this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.